Wow. Is God good or what? I just uh, am so blessed to be here and just to be able to worship God with you all today. Now, Christmas is over, New Year's has begun. Hopefully, you've cleaned up all the mess. We just uh, had a wonderful uh, two and a half weeks with my daughters who both live in Houston and I'm returning on my way back to Northern California where I live near Sacramento in the foothills of the Sierras. And this is my first time to Abilene and I'm really, really privileged to be here with you all this morning. When uh, Tommy and Carolyn at the Discovery Center asked me if I would be willing to come on the tail end of my trip to visit our daughters and our grandkids in Houston... I said, yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. And uh, he called Pastor Eckerd and was able to work us in so I could be with you this morning. And I count it a real privilege to be here. I listened to uh, Pastor Kevin's uh, talk of a few weeks ago, and I was just struck with the fact that I think this is a church that really is seeking the heart of God. And that really means a lot to me. Because, uh, as you know, when you travel around, you get into all sorts of situations. You find all sorts of people, but it's so special when you're with people who you can just see because of the leadership. What God is doing is very real in everyone's life here. And I trust that what we're going to experience today will just deepen that and heighten that and just expand it in ways that will really bring, bring glory to God. Amen? Now, um, we're, we're just kind of playing with some technology issues here, but I'm going to flip through slides. There's a good one. <laughs> Might as well pull that one up. It says, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, don't just read that. Understand that that's there for our edification, for our upbuilding. Now, just in case you wanted to know this, I don't know if you did or not. <laughs> There's what I left last week. And my two sons flew out from California so we could all be there together. And, uh, of course, that's the formal picture. This is the way it really looks. It's more like, uh, you see, is this going to work? There it is. It's sort of, you know. <laughs> There's a little craziness going on there, but I'm so proud of my four children. They're all involved in worship in their various churches, and uh, it's just really exciting to know the Lord, and that the Lord is at the heart of our children's hearts. And, and I really take that to heart because so much is going on in our world today that is trying desperately to drag our children away from God. And one of the best lessons that I've ever learned is the fact that it says in Hosea, my people are destroyed for a lack of what? Knowledge. Yet it says in Proverbs that through knowledge the righteous shall be delivered. And when we realize that oftentimes it's easier to just seek entertainment than to seek wisdom and knowledge. It's no wonder that uh, there's so many attempts to, to distract, uh, particularly our young people today. 
But it says, of course, in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. Do you want that wisdom? And we need to all ask ourselves, is that what we really want? If we do want that, he's very faithful to provide that. But uh, what's the primary way that God gives wisdom to those who ask? It doesn't just kind of pop out of the sky. It says very clearly, the entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. And of course, Jesus said in John 16, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The verse just before that has captured my attention a lot lately because it says just before when he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to really teach us the truth, Jesus said, there are many things that I cannot tell you now. In other words, you're, you're not ready for it. And really that's true at every stage of every believer's life. It's just like with a child. You can teach a child certain things at each stage that they grow through. But you can't tell them too much about steak when they're enjoying hamburger. You know what I mean? And, and so we go through these levels of maturity. And as we mature, we begin to realize, if, if we're willing to listen, that it says, He who gives an answer before he hears... It is folly and shame to him. Now, what's that mean? Have you ever run into somebody who, you know, they've got everything figured out. You try to tell them something that you've discovered that's really good and important and maybe he's going to really bless their life, but, oh, I already heard about that. I don't want to hear that. What do you, if it was really important, I would have heard about it before you did. You ever run into anybody with an attitude like that? Of course, this isn't any of you, I'm sure, but uh, what does it say there? He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. And it says over there in 1 Thessalonians, one of the most powerful things that has helped me a lot, and that is prove all things, hold fast what is good. If you're discerning and if you're mature and if you're really desiring to know the truth, then you will take the time to sort it out and put everything to the test. But also it says, do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So here we're seeing some counsel on how we are to, to share the things that are really good things that we've learned, but maybe others aren't ready to receive it yet. Like Jesus said, you can't receive it yet. Uh, there was a quote that I saw a few years ago, and I think it was uh, uh, one of the great scientists of the past, like Leonardo da Vinci or Galileo or somebody like that, and he, it said, you can't teach anybody anything, but you can lead them to discover things for themselves. And I thought from a secular perspective, that's kind of like, what we need to realize as Christians when we realize that it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who will guide us into all the truth. And sometimes we get frustrated when we want to teach somebody something and they're not getting it. To just be patient. 
Our job is not to make them get it. Our job is to just simply deliver the message. And if God puts us in a position where we can help them to reason it out and talk it out and, and, and really deepen their understanding, great. But as you do that, I want to give you some, some counsel that I wish I'd heard years ago. And uh, have you ever run into a fool? They're all over the place. You don't have to go far. A fool is someone who says there is no God. Now, there's a lot of other definitions in the Bible for a fool, but there's a caution here because it says in Proverbs 26, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, if you, if you start to sort that out, you start to realize that Well, let me use the ex explanation here. I went to college. I went through public school and high school and then went to college and graduate school. And quite frankly, there were a number of my teachers who were arrogant and proud, boastful, disrespectful to God. And later on in life, I learned that Jesus said, a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teachers. And when the Lord drew me to him in a very special way back in 1973, I was the curator of a historical museum. I built my first museum when I was 10 years old in my grandma's barn. I really did. My, dad, my grandpa died when I was two years old, and he left all this stuff behind. He was an inventor, and he was a plumber, and he was a beekeeper, and he was a prospector. He did all these fascinating things. I would have just loved to spend time with Grandpa. But eight years later, when I was ten, I found all this stuff, all this, these tools, and I didn't even know what it was, but I put it together and I said, Grandma, can I just kind of uh, make a display and then go up and down the neighborhood and sell tickets so they can come see my museum? <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, when I got through college, and just as providence would have it, the Lord led me through steps that I, I was not aware of God's guidance then. But I ended up going into the museum profession and absolutely loved it. So naturally, when Tommy and Carolyn told me about the Discovery Center and what they were doing, I couldn't wait to see it. And I had the chance to be here this week. I was just excited. I worked for a museum, a historical museum in the city of San Jose, California, 1970 to 1973. I was the curator. I was in charge of the master planning, all the, the volunteer efforts and the, the, uh, the displays and all the, the programs of the museum. And it was during that time that God reached down into my heart and just turned me around, got, me up, got my attention in such a way that I just couldn't get enough of God's Word. It's like I was so hungry for the Word of God. I, day and night, I mean, when I wasn't at work, I was at the church. I was at Bible study, and I, I just couldn't get enough of it. I said, is there any way that I could study the Bible more thoroughly? I mean, it's going to take me a lifetime to get through it at this rate. Somebody said, well, they, there's a Bible school up in Canada that you could go to that, that they knew about. and I, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Bible schools. I mean, I was educated, but I didn't have a clue. You ever run into people like that? They got all this education, but it's like they just don't know. 
So naturally, I was just wondering, where could I go? And I ended up in Canada. I went to Bible school at a little Bible college out in the prairies of central Canada in Saskatchewan, Canada. What a time. It was like going to heaven in the Bible day and night, just soaking on God's Word. And I was just, I thought I'd get an education in the Bible and then go back to my museum career. That's what I was there for. God had another plan. That was, oh my goodness, that was 1973, almost 40 years ago. Anyway, through a whole sequence of events, he ended up having me teach a course on science and the Bible because of my background in museums and science and history. They said, well, here's a guy we can make use of him, put him to work putting a course together on science as it relates to the Bible. And I did that and started teaching it. People were so excited about it. They said, well, you've got to teach seminars on this. Go start teaching around in churches. And so I did that. And, and it, people started saying, you've got to write a book on this. I said, really? And I, had to, I put all this stuff together in slides and fascinating stuff. Lots of pictures on all sorts of things. And so finally, the book that I wrote through many different transitions... Unlocking the Mysteries of Creation. All I can say is this is all about God working through a servant. I could never have done this. Never even dreamed of it. But when you see this book and what is just the, the topic that I've been privileged to share in churches and schools and places all over the country for the last over 30 years now, you begin to realize how God can reach into a person's life and as he has with you, working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's doing that, you know. Sometimes when you feel like God isn't very close, he is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You may not see the end of it yet, but still God is working in you. Now let's keep some things in mind. When I wrote Unlocking the Mysteries of Creation, and in that book uncovered all sorts of important information that's pretty hidden from the general public, and that's because it doesn't always fit with the you know, politically correct or evolutionary correct ideas that dominate today. But we find out all sorts of evidence that's very real, and one of the things that you'll learn if you were ever to go through one of the seminars that I've taught and the book that I've written, and you'll find that this millions of years thing, I was taught that all through college. It's all part of evolutionary bias. It's not based on history. and It's not based on science. And that came as a shock to me when I began to read in the Bible that there's historical references that help us to understand why that the earth is not millions and billions of years old. And all sorts of scientific evidence that supports it. In fact, you could go through a whole catalog of evidences that point to an earth whose age is very much in harmony with what the Bible teaches in Genesis. But we don't have time for all that tonight or this morning. And I, I'm getting all mixed up here. I was talking last night for hours and talking yesterday morning and tomorrow morning again, so <laughs> forgive me. But 
Look at the evidence. And again, are you willing to put everything to the test? That's all you're asked to do. And of course, if you were to study the things regarding you know, life sciences, whether it's the simple cell, there's no such thing as a simple cell, or DNA or all this kind of stuff, it's just amazing how the creation around us testifies to its design by a designer. And that's why God says they're all without excuse. Nobody has any excuse to get to heaven one day and say, well, God, you didn't tell me anything about you. Wait, it's all around you. The evidence is abundant. All you have to do is look at the intricacies of just living things everywhere. And of course, this idea about the missing links, have you ever, ever seen pictures like this? Well, I grew up with it. I never thought about arguing with it because I figured it was produced by scientists who know a whole lot more than I do. Come to find out, the whole thing's a pipe dream. And it's put together by many people who have an agenda to basically replace God with man. And to say, well, it all happens naturalistically. It all happens by itself. It doesn't really require a God. Well, if you want to be a believer in God, go ahead and do your religious thing. But don't try to mix it with science. The whole thing is bogus. And you find out that all of the supposed missing links that have ever been on the charts before are indeed missing. They're like phantoms that never existed. They're either all man or all ape or all fake. And there's been a bunch of those too. But it's worth time taken to study it so that you can see and really grab a hold of and be confident in the facts. And God's not afraid of the facts. How do I know that? Remember that verse that I mentioned earlier? Prove all things, hold fast what is good. The Apostle Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 5. Prove all things. Do you think God is afraid that you're going to uncover some little scientific little discovery somewhere that's going to embarrass God? No. And if God's not afraid of going out and exploring anything, why should you be? See, that's in my Christian experience, that's where I was when I was beginning to realize I love God, I love the Word, I'm so excited about it. But then my head was telling me, wait, what about all these things you've been learning? Who's right? Because you could see the conflict. And I had to decide, am I going to press through and really understand why I can be absolutely confident in God's Word? Or am I going to just give, me, give people that kind of that little glib answer like, well, I believe it because God said it and that settles it. And they'll say, yeah, one of those religious kooks so he obviously doesn't get it. Now, in case that's some of you, all of a sudden you'll feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because I was there and I was uncomfortable. And that's why it says, study to show yourself approved of God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to be studiers. And that's why Peter says that we need to be ready to give an answer, a reason. An answer, a reason. Ready to give an answer to those who ask you of the hope that is in you. 
Now, if you lived 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and maybe people weren't generally aware of things like what you're seeing on the screen today, it wouldn't matter. But if you're dealing with a culture that is, and that's where they're coming from, and you don't have an answer, they're going to write you off. At least be able to know where to point them. And so that's what the Lord has, I think, put in our plate, so to speak. We begin to realize that it's possible to have answers. Have you ever wondered, you know, why do certain problems seem to be increasing today? I mean, why are governments in the world so messed up and why is there so much strife and corruption? And even why are there allergies increasing and chronic diseases increasing and school violence is rising and all of that? But, yeah, you could say it's ultimately it's all the bad stuff is caused by sin. But let's face it. We're not really satisfied with pat answers that we can't do anything about. And we're commissioned by our Lord to do good works, help others with positive blessing and be constructive lights in the world that we might bring thanksgiving to God. That's our mission by Jesus himself. So what we are seeking is answers. We want answers. We want to tell people that there are reasons for this stuff. And really what it comes down to, and this is not, oh, there we are. What it really comes down to is that Christ's followers are confident that the ultimate resolution of all the problems is the glorious return of Jesus Christ, but, and, of course, the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. But when you really think about it, it's all about answers that come to us legitimately because of a process of cause and effect. I mean, it's the most basic scientific principle. It's fundamental to all the branches of science and philosophy Cause and effect requires that, get this, an observed event can be traced to an event that preceded it. Now, if you're talking about spiritual things, it still applies. The effect is salvation. The cause was Jesus on the cross, right? If you're talking about natural things, you're talking about a physical thing like a living cell or a living human being. What's the cause? So cause and effect is really basic to our understanding. Creationists, of course, believe the universe has a first cause, God. But atheists believe in no first cause. Hmm. All scientists accept the principle of cause and effect except those who reject a creator. Did you see that? In other words, you have to dismiss this universally recognized law of science if you reject the idea of a creator. Well, think about it. If you put it together, the universe did have a first cause, and, of course, a creationist, a Christian, believes that. For some reason, Dave, this thing is not always advancing, so help me if I'm trying to get it across. Okay, there's the next slide. I want you to look at that. When you're thinking about cause and effect... What does it say there at the beginning? It says evolutionists think that their belief is scientific and that the creation position is unscientific. And it's just some kind of a faith. Oh, wait. In the study of origins, the evolution model clearly 
contradicts the natural laws of science while the creation model complies with those natural laws. Because when it comes down to it, everybody believes in miracles. Now, what's a miracle? An event or an action that apparently contradicts known scientific laws. So look at this. This is interesting how this all comes together. What miracles do Christians believe in? Well, they believe a supernatural God exists. Of course, that's outside the known laws of nature. Creationists and Christians, of course, believe that God has the ability to create the universe. All the energy, all the matter from nothing. They believe that God has the ability to design an orderly universe. And they believe that God has the ability to create life. But what miracles do evolutionists believe in? Well, they believe that matter and energy created themselves from nothing. Hmm. Of course, that violates the first law of thermodynamics. Nothing comes from nothing. There always has to be something to get something to be caused into an effect, right? Of course, the evolutionist also has to believe that life originated from non-life. And that violates the law of biogenesis. Life, bio, genesis, beginning. Life always begins from life. You never get life from chemicals. Chemicals cannot produce life. There's a lot of chemicals in a corpse. In fact, there's a lot of organs and systems and all of the things necessary for a perfectly fully grown human being to be alive, but he's dead. How are you going to get the life in him? Chemicals won't do it. Got it? Evolutionists have no answer except a miracle. Of course, it's an evolutionary miracle that has no miracle causer. The universe also began as disorder, the Big Bang, and became orderly over time. And, of course, that violates the second law of thermodynamics. And that's the law that says everything in the universe, all the energy, all the systems tend to be going downhill. Everything's running down. Everything's wearing out. Everything is ultimately kind of being used up. It's less and less available. It's not being eliminated. It's just changing its form. And it's not a form that's going upwards, which is what evolution is. All the evidence of nature defies the very essence of evolution. It doesn't happen. But they have to believe in miracles, so they believe in evolution. And they don't want to let it be about God. Well, so what kind of faith does atheism require? And what about Christianity? Think about this. Some say it takes more faith to believe in evolution than to believe in a creator God. Watch it. What's your definition of faith? In Hebrews it says faith is the evidence of things not seen. I would propose that faith in evolution is not biblical faith. It is more like unrealistic gullibility for deceit. Now, watch it, because when people use the word faith, then you have to get a definition of what do they mean. And if you're a Christian, you have a very clear meaning of what that word means. So don't mistake it. Faith is not some kind of a, oh, it's out there somewhere and I just believe it. 
No, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is a powerful, dynamic influence that promotes confidence, not based on just a, oh, I just think it's so, or I kind of feel that way. No. But a lot of Christians haven't yet even discovered that because they haven't taken the time to study the very foundation of their faith. Let's look at some thoughts about our purpose. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And Jesus said, You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. He said further, If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rise from the dead. Did you get that? Here you're trying to, you know, share your belief in the Lord. You're trying to share the good things that God has done for you. And you think, well, maybe if God would just do a miracle. Are you getting it? Jesus is saying it wouldn't work. If they have a pre-programmed agenda, if they have been persuaded that Moses can't possibly be telling the truth, it's got to be a legend. You know, a Hebrew fairy tale. What is your objective? Many facts of history and science prompt endless arguments between people with all sorts of differing purposes. If your objective is to really know, and I mean know the truth, and be liberated from the destructive deceptions and ideas that lead to confusion and loss of personal liberty and happiness, then you have no reason to ever be afraid of the facts. It is so vital that we help our young people to know that or they are going to be seriously persuaded otherwise. And that's why it's so important for us to take the time. Be aware of our mission. It's to preach deliverance to the captives, isn't it? Well, in Isaiah it says, My people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Now, why would they have no knowledge? Why would they lack knowledge? Did you get that? Captivity comes because of why? They have no knowledge. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah in the 5th chapter, the verse just before that, in verse 12, says, It's because they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of His hands. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Did you get that? Whose people? The devil's people? My people. That is a key verse that compelled me over 25 years ago to see why God put me in the place that I'm in today. And I have had times when I get discouraged and I've felt like, oh, what's the use because nobody's listening and it's like the only people that are listening are the people in the choir loft and it's like the people out there could care less. And even a lot of Christians, they think, oh, everybody believes that God created anyway and they really don't. So why do you keep doing what you're doing? Because people are being led away into captivity because they don't realize the works of God's hands all around them give them plenty of clear reason to have confidence in His Word. We don't ever need to be afraid that God is going to somehow be disproven. And I want to take a look at just one little area that's so interesting and we've only got a few minutes, so I can't cover it all, but we're going to switch to 
Another program that I've presented just recently in a few places, I'm going to be going back down to Peru next April, this coming April. I could have, I mean, talk about amazed. Now, here's a guy who has studied world history, I've studied American history, I've studied all kinds of science, studied geology, studied a lot of different things regarding history and folklore and cultures around the world. And I never heard about any of this. Listen to this. When, and it's in my book. I'm, I'm going to have to go ahead into this a little further. By the way, the word dinosaur, it's a new word. It was invented in 1841. Did you get that? So people said, well, the dinosaurs aren't in the Bible. Oh, really? If you don't think the dinosaurs are in the Bible, you might want to think again. Because before 1841, everybody called them dragons. That's right. In fact, Alexander the Great reported that when he conquered parts of what is now India in 326 B.C., his soldiers were scared by the great dragons that lived in caves. I thought dragons were all mythical. No. Because I'd been taught by my evolutionary teachers that dragons are kind of a figment of ancient imagination. Uh, consider something else. Marco Polo lived in China for 17 years, around 1271 A.D., and reported that the emperor raised dragons to pull his chariots in parades. How come I never heard that? And I studied world history. The Bible says the word dragons at least 35 times in the Bible. And, and there's a number of references that make it very clear that there were such a thing as dragons. It wasn't called dinosaurs because they didn't have the word. A Babylonian cylinder seal from 600 B.C. And there's a guy there doing a little arm wrestling with a dragon. A winged dragon. And there's so many different references to that. There's one in Ireland from A.D. 900 that described an animal that looks very much like what we call a stegosaurus. And there's a whole bunch of things on walls that is carvings or paintings on Stone walls, like this one near the Grand Canyon. Or pardon me, this one's up in Ontario. There are ones in the, in the Grand Canyon. This is Ontario, Canada. And you look at those kinds of drawings. Here's another one. If you look at it real close, you'll see it a little bit better. There it is. And you begin to realize that there are all sorts of evidences around the world that dinosaurs have been seen by human beings. Okay, I'm going to need your help, David, because this is not advancing for some reason. Maybe my battery's got weak or something. Okay, here's one from Australia. Look at it. Here's a stick man, a little drawing characterizing a, a man running away to the left. And he's running away from what? If you look closely at that image there painted on the rock, it looks like you're looking from the top down on a great big brontosaurus or something. Great big bulbous body with four stout legs and a long neck. Interesting. What is that? All sorts of creatures. Go ahead and advance it to the next slide, if you can. And here's a Roman mosaic from the 2nd century A.D. And it shows two long-necked, what looked like, dinosaurs. Again, I never heard about that either. Yeah, I'm going to need your help, David, if you could just kind of keep plugging ahead with me. Go ahead. Here's one from Egypt. Again, you see, if you look at that, you see that, the two long-necked creatures there? You see that? See where my pointer is? Again, this is one of the oldest inscriptions from an ancient era of Egypt, and it shows what looked like dinosaurs on it. 
I wonder why they're there. Well, they're not supposed to be there. They're supposed to be, you know, just mythical. Why would they put that on an inscription of this kind? Okay, go ahead to the next one. And showing people interacting with them. In 1571, the Spanish conquistadors mentioned that there were stones with strange creatures carved on them found in the southern region of Peru. Strange creatures on stones. Hmm, what's that about? Go ahead to the next slide. There's ceramic art from ancient Peru that includes images of dragons as well. Go to the next slide. And in my book, I cover some, at least some brief discussions about some of these different ideas about dragons from all over the world. Because I, I was, you know, like a lot of little boys when I was about 10, 12 years old, I was fascinated with dinosaurs and always have had an interest in them, like many of us. And I started to think, well, how does that fit into the Bible? Because, you know, the evolutionists say the dinosaurs died out you know, 65 million years ago, and they lived for over 100 million years ago, and they, 100 million years, and they were supposed to be very dominant and very capable of existing on the earth. Well, why are they all gone? Well, there's good answers for that, but it'll take some time going through the evidence to find out why and what the Bible, as well as other uh, historical evidences, have to say about it. Let's go to the next slide. We've been programmed to think that dragons are mythical, so we deal with that whole subject of dragon legends and actually quotes some of those legends in my book. And over on the right-hand side are just some examples of something that I want to show you just briefly, a little bit about. Go to the next slide, David. Can you go to the next? Are you able to uh, change that there? So here we're talking about Peru. And I'm going to quickly go through some of the slides here just to give you a little bit of an idea about what we're finding in Peru. Uh, there's, a, there's so much interesting stuff there and technology of ancient people. That's another subject that's really worth studying. The technology of these ancient people in Peru is just amazing how they were able to build and do some of the things that we see evidences for today. Let's go to the next slide. Have you ever heard of the Nazca Lines? The Nazca Lines can only be really understood as you go up in an airplane and, and look at them from high up in the air. This is a spider, of course, an image of a spider, but it's about the size of a football field. I mean, it's a huge, sort of like an engraving on the desert floor. The, the interesting thing is that spider is a, the image of the spider there is actually reflective of a real spider that lives in the Amazon rainforest there in Peru. And it's only about an eighth of an inch big. And you look at this image here on this, and this is just kind of interesting. Here's, uh, you see the legs of the spider in this one leg, and it kind of goes off to the side. Now when I discovered this, I thought, no way. This is amazing. Why would they depict the image of the spider with its last appendage there kind of having a right angle and going off on the side. Well, it just so happens that in, in modern science now, they take this little eight-inch spider and they kind of followed it and under the microscope watched its life cycle. And it goes through, you know, over a period of days and weeks, goes through stages of its life. And there's one cycle in its life cycle, one part of the time, when it actually produces an extension on its leg. Now, you can only see it under the microscope. But how did these ancient people over a thousand years ago figure that out and find out that it was important enough to make a drawing of it on the desert there in Peru? That's just one of those little interesting observations. As you travel through the Andes 
You go to the town of Cusco, which is at 11,000 feet elevation above sea level. That'll take your breath away. And, of course, uh, Machu Picchu, which is a fascinating fortress of the ancient Incas. Inca, I-N-C-A. But I want to say something else about uh, a different area. We're going to have to go quickly. There's a place called Ica. You have to cross a desert to get there. It's the driest desert in the world. In fact, uh, in the middle of the desert, uh, by the way, here's some of the Nazca lines. And this one is, I don't know if you can see it because it's kind of faint, but you see a, what looks like a great big bird. It's, they call it the pelican. And there are other Nazca lines there. This one is called the condor. On those slides, it's a little hard to see. Here's just some diagrams of the way the images are laid out on the desert floor. This desert hasn't seen any rain in 2,000 years, any measurable rain. 2,000 years. You think it's dry in West Texas? This is dry. And hardly any wind in this particular area, otherwise the lines would have been all you know, dissipated. This one, of course, you can guess what that's an image of. And again, this, this thing is also huge. I don't know exactly how big it is, but it is huge, probably bigger than a football field. And again, you can, you can only see it really well from up, up above. You, you go through this oasis en route to the city, the little town of Ica. Well, 50,000 people. I guess it's a little town. But uh, it, right in the middle of the desert, sand dunes all around. On the road to Ica here, you're seeing a little bit of this desert. Not a blade of grass. There isn't anything, not even a weed. Hasn't seen rain in all that time. Here's the ancient cemetery of Ica, Peru. It was at this cemetery and others nearby where over the last, I don't know how many years decades, maybe centuries, uh, grave robbers have gotten into the graves to try to remove anything that might be valuable, silver, gold, who knows, implements of what war, warfare, whatever they could find. And so as you look out over the desert, you see, and by the way, the trees that you see in the background are because of irrigation, okay? Just so you, if that looks like an oddity. But you're seeing these little divots, these little dips in the ground. Those are graves that have been robbed because they're actually like a little tomb little room under the surface, and in those tombs, and here, let's go to the next slide, you can see uh, one of the tombs that's been set up as a kind of a little uh, display for people to look at. And uh, the mummies that are in these tombs oftentimes still have the skin on them, the hair on them. I mean, the, the, it's so dry, the preservation, even though they've been there for in some cases, more than a thousand years. But they found all sorts of other things there in the tombs over the years with them. So here you're seeing again where some of those graves are. There are thousands of them all over the desert, all these tombs. So we're looking at cause and effect. Okay, here's the effect. We're seeing the tombs. We're seeing something that's in the tombs. We're going to look at some, th some things that are there. And how do you explain them when you find them? And, of course, this is just one of the images, a ceramic statue that was found in one of the tombs there, and it's on display in one of the public museums at the National Aeronautic Museum. The National Aeronautic Museum is associated with the Peruvian Air Force, and they have a, a number of displays there about ancient air technology. Now, that's right. The Peruvians have known this for years, that their ancient ancestors actually knew how to make flying machines where they could fly up in the air. Hot air balloons, gliders, I don't know, a number of things. But they also have in the museum, it's in a secret room that's locked away because they don't open it to the general public. I wonder why. 
and it's loaded with all sorts of stones. And if you look really closely, now study that for a minute. I'm going to show you something. This is the jaw. This is the head, the eye, the neck, the body, some little uh, pointed objects on the spine going down to its tail. Do you see that? What is that? Well, it looks like a dinosaur. Here's another one. Again, look at there's the head. There's the neck. There's the body. Now, these are on big boulders. They're river rocks. This is the same stone, slightly different angle. And here you see the body of the creature and the legs. Now, this is on display, but it's locked up. has been for years. Why? Produced by a culture, the Ica culture, that preceded the Inca culture. Ica, Inca. Got it? And these stones were buried with people. Who knows why? Maybe it was just to indicate some kind of an event in the life of the person because often with the images of the animals that are found in these stones, there are images of people. This is the home of a man who was a medical doctor in the city of Ica for over 45 years. He died just five years ago. And he made it his uh, hobby to collect these stones. Dr. Javier Cabrera collected these stones. Now, he's not the only one, but he's probably the most notable one, and his house is full of them. I mean, everywhere in the house, he has a big house. He's got 11,000 of these stones. Over 40 years, you can collect a lot of stones, I guess. But all these stones have all sorts of images on them. I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, look at here. There's something that looks like an insect or a flying insect of some kind. Up there, there's a turtle. You see that up there? And then uh, here's an image of some kind of a shape. Who knows? Maybe some kind of a, a religious symbol or whatever. It looks almost like the, the serpent around the pole that are sometimes you see in the medical profession. But uh, here's a cart with a donkey or some kind of a horse. Lots of different things. Here's an elephant. Elephants in Peru? I didn't know about that. Were there elephants in Peru? Well, maybe. I guess they must have seen them. Here's a monkey. Of course, you can see that. And uh, all sorts of things that, uh, let's see if we can get to the next one. We don't want to keep watching that monkey who's indecently exposed. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, but all sorts of images. Look at here's some kind of a lobster-looking thing that looks like some ancient uh, animal that is now extinct, almost like a trilobite or something. But look at a lot of people on them. And by the way, some of the uh, images convey some of the images that we see on the desert plain of the Nazca Lines nearby. Here's what looks like a lobster. You see the segmented body of the lobster, a bird. But then what do you do when you find other things? Now, here's an image. Uh, again, there's all sorts of styles and different kinds of uh, you know, content in the actual imagery that's pictured on these stones. But when you look at some of them, you find things that are not supposed to be there, at least to our way of thinking. This looks like continents separated by water or separated by some kind of space. 
And it's roughly equivalent to the six or five or six continents of the world today. Here again, another one, a similar one, different image, and another one. Here's an image that shows one individual, a human individual, examining the innards of another human individual. Looks like he's actually doing a surgery on his abdomen. Now, you mean they actually did surgery back then? I guess that's what we're seeing. And here's a, an individual that's holding what looks like what? What do you think that is? Now, wait, this is a thousand years ago. Did they have telescopes a thousand years ago? I was taught that they didn't. But the Peruvians have known this all along. And he's looking at what looks like a comet. See this thing here? An image of what is looking like a comet coming his way. And here's another image of a similar subject with a, two individuals looking up through some kind of a tube looking at a comet. And here's one just with a host of all sorts of things. But guess what else is in here? Here's a guy. Looks like he's trying to get away. One of his legs is stuck in the mouth of, uh-oh, what is this? A dinosaur? Did you see that? Are you able to see that? Okay, well, uh, yeah, somebody saw it over here. <laughs> now, here's an image of a fish, but underneath is an image of what looks like a familiar dinosaur. What is it called? Triceratops. Now, wait, this can't be. This is a thousand years ago, ancient civilization in South America. Well, there is an explanation because you realize that all these people that were apparently fascinated with these dinosaurs and, and making these engravings of them tell us a story. And they're all over the place. There's another one and there's another one. And I could show you all sorts of different dinosaurs and people together. And you can read about it in this very special book who is written by Dennis Swift, probably the, the most knowledgeable person living today on the subject. And it is quite a, a detective story for sure. And you can read a little bit about this whole subject in my book, Unlocking the Mysteries of Creation. But the idea that humans and dinosaurs walked on earth together is verified by hard science. But most people don't know about it. Or they might have heard that, oh, yeah, they disproved that. They said, that's us all bogus. It can't be true anyway. Now, what? wait, the Ikeburial stone engravings, are they genuine or are they fake? They've been found in collections that we're not trying to prove anything. Now, what's the motive? How can so many artisans have been complicit? And noted the fact that they were found by people in the 16th century and reported there. There's all sorts of subjects, but how do they carve them? And that's an interesting one, too, because when you look at the carvings real close up, there's no evidence of any kind of a rotary tool like we might use some kind of a, what do they call this? Like a Dremel? No evidence of a, of a high-speed rotary tool. There's no evidence of even somebody carving it with a hacksaw or something like that, which you'd expect to see some some little ragged edges and maybe even some flecks of metal if that were the case, but you don't see that. In fact, you see very clear, very evenly deep lines. In many cases, the, the lines are so smooth, you'd almost think it had to be cut by a laser. Now, I'm not saying it was, but... Is it possible that they could do something like that? Is it possible that they had the technology? You see, 
The premise of a false theory is the only real reason to disregard them and to say that they're fake. When you look at the evidences, and especially when you see features that are only recently verified, there are evidences on them that indicate that the dinosaurs had features on them that were not even known until very recent scientific time. And that helps us to know that these couldn't have been faked. Well, what does the Bible have to say? Of course, all sorts of things. And we, we don't have time to it. We've already gone way past our time. Uh, there's one verse in the Bible in Job chapter 40, a whole passage that talks about an animal called behemoth. It's not an elephant because it specifically says that his tail is like a cedar tree. And if you've ever seen an elephant tail, you realize that doesn't qualify. So what is this behemoth? It's not an elephant. It says he's the chief of the ways of God. Job lived about 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ, 300 years or 400 years after the flood, way before Moses and possibly even before Abraham. And the whole point is that Job is talking about, actually, he's not doing the talking. God is. Job is shutting up. He's just listening to God. And God is saying, he's, God's given Job a nature lesson. And when we think about it, God is telling Job some profound insight here because it's, he's showing him an animal. Let's go to the next slide. I, for some reason, this isn't working. Can you help me, David? Okay, David is not able to help me. I guess he's doing other things. But that's all right. I just wanted to let you know that there is evidence both biblically, and go to the next slide, and historically and scientifically that Job really did see something like that. Wow. How could that be true? Of course, we realize it's based on evidence. Evolution is not based on evidence. Evidence is what it takes to help us understand something to be true. And most people don't know how to ask the questions to qualify whether evolution is true or not. Because it's actually based on science ideas that deny the truth. It's not based on hard evidence. But, of course, that's why it's important to study. And that's why, over time, the Lord has allowed me to study this and sort it all out and and be willing to take all the abuse and the ridicule from people who have not taken the time to study. What is a wise man? Someone who will look at the evidence. Someone who will say, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. I want to know. I want to understand. Maybe you'll like to join us at Peru sometime. Uh, by the way, there's five seats on the bus if you want to go on this next trip, if you feel like that's something you just got to do. But uh, I'd love to take somebody from Abilene, and you can come back and tell everybody in Abilene all about it. Let's go ahead and turn off the slides for now, David. I just want to uh, wrap up here by saying this. A lot of people would say, well, this is all interesting and naturally fascinating, but what's this got to do with our spiritual life? What's this got to do with our mission in sharing the gospel with Jesus, of Jesus with people? There's a passage in the Bible where Paul wrote about the resurrection. He said, first comes the natural, 
After that, the spiritual. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he recognized their natural need and he fed them. When we send missionaries to various countries around the world that are suffering and in really a lot of hurt, we dig wells for them and we feed them and we educate them and we help them to be able to receive the gospel. Are you getting the feeling that maybe there are a lot of people around us in our society today that need to have a little ministry on the natural level so that they can receive the spiritual? And that's really what this is all about. This is all, all it is is a platform. Yeah, we want to go on to greater things. We want to go on to things that are, you know, glorious in God and heavenly and wonderful. But if we don't address some of the questions that so many are asking, why do you have a faith in God's Word? Why do you believe the Bible? I mean, something like dinosaurs, obviously, it disproves the Bible. No, it doesn't. If you know just a few things, you can put yourself in a position to be able to minister graciously to those who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. The only question is, will you take the time to do that? So that you can be a workman who is not ashamed, able to give an answer when somebody asks, or at least point them in the right direction. And I trust that the Lord is probably using, even right now, the, some of the things that we've looked at as a little bit of a prod to help you to think, well, maybe I need to look at this. And maybe this is something that I need to prepare for the sake of my children, my grandchildren, my loved ones who often are being tempted away from God. And they need some answers. God, give us those answers. And He has. Avail yourself to the resources that will help you to fulfill those questions.